Section 15 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 5, Chapters 1 through 3. Book 5, containing a portion of time somewhat longer than half a year. Chapter 1. Of the serious in writing, and for what purpose it is introduced. Peradventure there may be no parts in this prodigious work which will give the reader less pleasure in the perusing than those which have given the author the greatest pains in composing. Among these, probably, may be reckoned those initial essays which we have prefixed to the historical matter contained in every book, and which we have determined to be essentially necessary to this kind of writing, of which we have set ourselves at the head. For this our determination we do not hold ourselves strictly bound to assign any reason, it being abundantly sufficient that we have laid it down as a rule necessary to be observed in all prosaic, comic, epic writing. Whoever demanded the reasons of that nice unity of time or place which is now established, to be so essential to dramatic poetry. What critic hath been ever asked why a play may not contain two days, as well as one? Or why the audience, provided they travel, like electors, without any expense, may not be wafted fifty miles, as well as five? Hath any commentator well accounted for the limitation which an ancient critic hath set to the drama, which he will have contain neither more nor less than five acts? Or hath any one living attempted to explain what the modern judges of our theatres mean by that word, lo, by which they have happily succeeded in banishing all humour from the stage, and have made the theatre as dull as a drawing-room. Upon all these occasions the world seems to have embraced a maxim of our law, viz. Quicunc in arte sua perdito credentum est. For it seems, perhaps difficult, to conceive that any one should have had enough of impudence to lay down dogmatical rules in any art or science without the least foundation. In such cases, therefore, we are apt to conclude there are sound and good reasons at the bottom, though we are unfortunately not able to see so far. Now, in reality, the world have paid too great a compliment to critics, and have imagined them men of much greater profundity than they really are. From this complacence the critics have been emboldened 
to assume a dictatorial power, and have so far succeeded, that they are now become the masters, and have the assurance to give laws to those authors, from whose predecessors they originally received them. The critic, rightly considered, is no more than the clerk, whose office it is to transcribe the rules and laws laid down by those great judges whose vast strength of genius hath placed them in the light of legislators, in the several sciences over which they presided. This office was all which the critics of old aspired to, nor did they ever dare to advance a sentence without supporting it by the authority of the judge from whence it was borrowed. But in process of time, and in ages of ignorance, the clerk began to invade the power, and assume the dignity of his master. The laws of writing were no longer founded on the practice of the author, but on the dictates of the critic. The clerk became the legislator, and those very preemptorily gave laws whose business it was, at first, only to transcribe them. Hence arose an obvious, and perhaps an unavoidable, error. For these critics, being men of shallow capacities, very easily mistook mere form for substance. They acted as a judge would, who should adhere to the lifeless letter of law, and reject the spirit. Little circumstances, which were perhaps accidental in a great author, were by these critics considered to constitute his chief merit, and transmitted as essentials to be observed by all his successors. To these encroachments, time and ignorance, the two great supporters of imposture, gave authority, and thus many rules for good writing have been established, which have not the least foundation in truth or nature, and which commonly serve for no other purpose than to curb and restrain genius, in the same manner as it would have restrained the dancing-master, had the many excellent treatises on that art laid it down as an essential rule that every man must dance in chains. To avoid, therefore, all imputation of laying down a rule for posterity, founded only on the authority of ipse dixit, for which, to say the truth, we have not the profoundest veneration, we shall here waive the privilege above contended for, and proceed to lay before the reader the reasons which have induced us to intersperse these several digressive essays in the course of this work. And here we shall of necessity be led to open a new vein of knowledge, which, if it hath been discovered, hath not, to our remembrance, been wrought on by any ancient or modern writer. 
This vein is no other than that of contrast, which runs through all the works of the creation, and may probably have a large share in constituting in us the idea of all beauty, as well natural as artificial. For what demonstrates the beauty and excellent of anything, but its reverse? Thus, the beauty of day, and that of summer, is set off by the horrors of night and winter. And, I believe, if it was possible for a man to have seen only the two former, he would have a very imperfect idea of their beauty. But, to avoid too serious an air, can it be doubted but that the finest woman in the world would lose all benefit of her charms in the eye of a man who had never seen one of another cast? The ladies themselves seem so sensible of this, that they are all industrious to procure foils. Nay, they will become foils to themselves, for I have observed, at Bath particularly, that they endeavour to appear as ugly as possible in the morning, in order to set off that beauty which they intend to show you in the evening. Most artists have this secret in practice, though some perhaps have not much studied the theory. The jeweller knows that the finest brilliant requires a foil, and the painter, by the contrast of his figures, often acquires great applause. A great genius among us will illustrate this matter fully. I cannot, indeed, range him under any general head of common artists, as he hath a title to be placed among those. Inventas qui vitam excolere per artes, who by invented arts have life improved. I mean here the inventor of that most exquisite entertainment called the English pantomime. This entertainment consisted of two parts, which the inventor distinguished by the names of the serious and the comic. The serious exhibited a certain number of heathen gods and heroes, who were certainly the worst and dullest company into which an audience was ever introduced and, which was a secret known to few, were actually intended so to be, in order to contrast the comic part of the entertainment, and to display the tricks of Harlequin to the better advantage. This was, perhaps, no very civil use of such personages, but the contrivance was, nevertheless, ingenious enough, and had its effect. And this will now plainly appear, if, instead of serious and comic, we supply the words duller and dullest, for the comic was certainly duller than anything before shown on the stage, and could be set off only by that superlative degree of dullness which composed the serious. So intolerably serious, indeed, were these gods and heroes, that Harlequin, though the English gentleman of that name is not at all related to the French family, 
for he is of a much more serious disposition, was always welcome on the stage, as he relieved the audience from worse company. Judicious writers have always practiced this art of contrast with great success. I have been surprised that Horace should cavil at this art in Homer, but, indeed, he contradicts himself in the very next line. Indignor quanduque bonas dormitat Homerus, verum opere in longo fas est obrepere somnum. I grieve if ever great Homer chance to sleep, yet slumbers on long works have right to creep. For we are not here to understand, as perhaps some have, that an author actually falls asleep while he is writing. It is true that readers are too apt to be so overtaken, but if the work was as long as any of old Mixon, the author himself is too well entertained to be subject to the least drowsiness. He is, as Mr. Pope observes, sleepless himself to give his readers sleep. To say the truth, these soporific parts are so many scenes of serious artfully interwoven, in order to contrast and set off the rest. And this is the true meaning of a late facetious writer who told the public that, whenever he was dull, they might be assured there was a design in it. In this light, then, or rather, in this darkness, I would have the reader to consider these initial essays. And after this warning, if he shall be of opinion that he can find enough of serious in other parts of this history, he may pass over these, in which we profess to be laboriously dull, and begin the following books at the second chapter. CHAPTER Two, In which Mr. Jones receives many friendly visits during his confinement, with some fine touches of the passion of love, scarce visible to the naked eye. Tom Jones had many visitors during his confinement, though some, perhaps, were not very agreeable to him. Mr. Allworthy saw him almost every day, but though he pitied Tom's sufferings, and greatly approved the gallant behavior which had occasioned them, yet he thought this was a favorable opportunity to bring him to a sober sense of his indiscreet conduct, and that wholesome advice for that purpose could never be applied at a more proper season than at the present, when the mind was softened by pain and sickness, and alarmed by danger, and when its attention was unembarrassed with those turbulent passions which engage us in the pursuit of pleasure. At all seasons, therefore, when the good man was alone with the youth, especially when the latter was totally at ease, he took occasion to remind him of his former miscarriages, but in the mildest and tenderest manner, and only in order to introduce the caution which he prescribed for his future behavior, on which alone, he assured him, would depend his own felicity, 
and the kindness which he might yet promise himself to receive at the hands of his father by adoption, unless he should hereafter forfeit his good opinion, for as to what had passed, he said, it should be all forgiven and forgotten. He therefore advised him to make a good use of this accident, that so in the end it might prove a visitation for his own good. Thwackham was likewise pretty assiduous in his visits, and he too considered a sick-bed to be a convenient scene for lectures. His style, however, was more severe than Mr. Allworthy's. He told his pupil, that he ought to look on his broken limb as a judgment from heaven on his sins, that it would become him to be daily on his knees, pouring forth thanksgivings that he had broken his arm only, and not his neck, which latter, he said, was very probably reserved for some further occasion, and that, perhaps, not very remote. For his part, he said, he had often wondered some judgment had not overtaken him before, but it might be perceived by this that divine punishments, though slow, are always sure. Hence, likewise, he advised him to foresee with equal certainty the greater evils which were yet behind, and which were as sure as this of overtaking him in his state of reprobacy. These are, said he, to be averted only by such a thorough and <coughs> sincere repentance, as is not to be expected or hoped for from one so abandoned in his youth, and whose mind, I am afraid, is totally corrupted. It is my duty, however, to exhort you to this repentance, though I too well know all exhortations will be in vain and fruitless. But liberavi animam meam. I can accuse my own conscience of no neglect, though it is at the same time with the utmost concern I see you travelling on to certain misery in this world, and to as certain damnation in the next. Square talked in a very different strain. He said, Such accidents as a broken bone were below the consideration of a wise man. That it was abundantly sufficient to reconcile the mind to any of these mischances, to reflect that they are liable to befall the wisest of mankind, and are undoubtedly for the good of the whole. He said, It was a mere abuse of words to call those things evils, in which there was no moral unfitness. That pain, which was the worst consequence of such accidents, was the most contemptible thing in the world, with more of the like sentences extracted out of the second book of Tully's Tusculan Questions, and from the great Lord Shaftesbury. In pronouncing these, he was one day so eager that he, unfortunately, bit his tongue, and in such a manner that it not only put an end to his discourse, 
but created much emotion in him, and caused him to mutter an oath or two. But what was worst of all, this accident gave Thwackham, who was present, and who held all such doctrine to be heathenish and atheistical, an opportunity to clap a judgment on his back. Now this was done with so malicious a sneer that it totally unhinged, if I may so say, the temper of the philosopher, which the bite of his tongue had somewhat ruffled, and as he was disabled from venting his wrath at his lips, he had possibly found a more violent method of revenging himself, had not the surgeon, who was then luckily in the room, contrary to his own interest, interposed and preserved the peace. Mr. Blilfill visited his friend Jones, but seldom, and never alone. This worthy young man, however, professed much regard for him, and as great concern at his misfortune, but cautiously avoided any intimacy, lest, as he frequently hinted, it might contaminate the sobriety of his own character, for which purpose he had constantly in his mouth that proverb in which Solomon speaks against evil communication, not that he was so bitter as Thwackham, for he always expressed some hopes of Tom's reformation, which, he said, the unparalleled goodness shown by his uncle on this occasion must certainly affect in one not absolutely abandoned, but concluded, if Mr. Jones ever offends hereafter, I shall not be able to say a syllable in his favour. As to Squire Western, he was seldom out of the sick-room, unless when he was engaged either in the field or over his bottle. Nay, he would sometimes retire hither to take his beer, and it was not without difficulty that he was prevented from forcing Jones to take his beer too, for no quack ever held his nostrum to be a more general panacea than he did this, which, he said, had more virtue in it than was in all the physic in an apothecary's shop. He was, however, by much entreaty, prevailed on to forbear the application of this medicine, but from serenading his patient every hunting morning, with the horn under his window, it was impossible to withhold him, nor did he ever lay aside that hallow with which he entered into all companies, when he visited Jones, without any regard to the sick person's being at that time, either awake or asleep. This boisterous behaviour, as it meant no harm, so happily it affected none, and was abundantly compensated to Jones, as soon as he was able to sit up, by the company of Sophia, whom the squire then brought to visit him. Nor was it indeed long before Jones was able to attend her to the harpsichord, where she would kindly condescend, for hours together, to charm him with the most delicious music, unless when the squire thought proper to interrupt her, by insisting on old Sir Simon, or 
some other of his favorite pieces. Notwithstanding the nicest guard which Sophia endeavored to set on her behavior, she could not avoid letting some appearances now and then slip forth, for love may again be likened to a disease in this, that when it is denied a vent in one part, it will certainly break out in another. What her lips, therefore, concealed, her eyes, her blushes, and many little involuntary actions betrayed. One day, when Sophia was playing on the harpsichord, and Jones was attending, the squire came into the room, crying, There, Tom, I have had a battle for thee below stairs with thick Parson Thwackham. He hath been a-tellin' allworthy before my face that the broken bone was a judgment upon thee. Damn it, says I, how can it be? Did he not come by it in defence of a young woman? A judgment, indeed. Pox! If he never doth anything worse, he will go to heaven sooner than all the parsons in the country. He hath more reason to glory in it than to be ashamed of it. Indeed, sir, says Jones, I have no reason for either. But if it preserved Miss Western, I shall always think it the happiest accident of my life. And to guh, said the squire, to zet, allworthy against thee for it. Damn him! If the parson hadn't his petticoats on, I should a lent on a flick, for I love thee dearly, my boy, and damn me if there is anything to my power which I won't do for thee. Shat take thy choice of all the horses in my stable to-morrow morning, except only the Chevalier and Miss Slouch. Jones thanked him, but declined accepting the offer. Nay, added the squire, Shat had the sorrel mare that Sophie rode. She cost me fifty guineas, and comes six years old, this grass. If she had cost me a thousand, cries Jones passionately, I would have given her to the dogs. Pooh, pooh, answered Western. What, because she broke thy arm, shouldst forget and forgive? I thought hadst been more a man than to bear malice against a dumb creature. Here Sophia interposed, and put an end to the conversation, by desiring her father's leave to play to him, a request which he never refused. The countenance of Sophia had undergone more than one change during the foregoing speeches, and, probably, she imputed the passionate resentment which Jones had expressed against the mare to a different motive from that from which her father had derived it. Her spirits were, at this time, in a visible flutter, and she played so intolerably ill that had not Western soon fallen asleep, he must have remarked it. Jones, however, who was sufficiently awake, and was not without an ear any more than without eyes, 
made some observations, which being joined to all which the reader may remember to have passed formerly, gave him pretty strong assurances, when he came to reflect on the whole, that all was not well in the tender bosom of Sophia, an opinion which many young gentlemen will, I doubt not, extremely wonder at his not having been well confirmed in long ago. To confess the truth, he had rather too much diffidence in himself, and was not forward enough in seeing the advances of a young lady, a misfortune which can be cured only by that early town education which is at present so generally in fashion. When these thoughts had fully taken possession of Jones, they occasioned a perturbation in his mind, which, in a constitution less pure and firm than his, might have been, at such a season, attended with very dangerous consequences. He was truly sensible of the great worth of Sophia. He extremely liked her person, no less admired her accomplishments, and tenderly loved her goodness. In reality, as he had never once entertained any thought of possessing her, nor had ever given the least voluntary indulgence to his inclinations, he had a much stronger passion for her than he himself was acquainted with. His heart now brought forth the full secret, at the same time that it assured him the adorable object returned his affection. CHAPTER three, WHICH ALL WHO HAVE NO HEART WILL THINK TO CONTAIN MUCH ADO ABOUT NOTHING. The reader will perhaps imagine the sensations which now arose in Jones to have been so sweet and delicious that they would rather tend to produce a cheerful serenity in the mind than any of those dangerous effects which we have mentioned. But, in fact, sensations of this kind, however delicious, are, at their first recognition, of a very tumultuous nature, and have very little of the opiate in them. They were, moreover, in the present case, embittered with certain circumstances, which, being mixed with sweeter ingredients, tended altogether to compose a draught that might be termed bitter-sweet, than which, as nothing can be more disagreeable to the palate, so nothing, in the metaphorical sense, can be so injurious to the mind. For, first, though he had sufficient foundation to flatter himself in what he had observed in Sophia, he was not yet free from doubt of misconstruing compassion, or at best esteem, into a warmer regard. He was far from a sanguine assurance that Sophia had any such affection towards him, as might promise his inclinations that harvest which, if they were encouraged and nurse, they would finally grow up to require. Besides, if he could hope to find no bar to his happiness from the daughter, he thought himself certain of meeting an effectual bar in the father, who, 
though he was a country squire in his diversions, was perfectly a man of the world in whatever regarded his fortune, had the most violent affection for his only daughter, and had often signified, in his cups, the pleasure he proposed in seeing her married to one of the richest men in the country. Jones was not so vain and senseless a coxcomb as to expect, from any regard which Western had professed for him, that he would ever be induced to lay aside these views of advancing his daughter. He well knew that fortune is generally the principal, if not the sole, consideration which operates on the best of parents in these matters, for friendship makes us warmly espouse the interest of others, but it is very cold to the gratification of their passions. Indeed, to feel the happiness which may result from this, it is necessary that we should possess the passion ourselves. As he had, therefore, no hopes of obtaining her father's consent, so, he thought, to endeavour to succeed without it, and by such means to frustrate the great point of Mr. Western's life, was to make a very ill use of his hospitality, and a very ungrateful return to the many little favours received, however roughly, at his hands. If he saw such a consequence with horror and disdain, how much more was he shocked with what regarded Mr. Allworthy, to whom, as he had more than filial obligations, so had he for him more than filial piety. He knew the nature of that good man to be so averse to any baseness or treachery, that the least attempt of such a kind would make the sight of the guilty person for ever odious to his eyes, and his name a detestable sound in his ears. The appearance of such insurmountable difficulties was sufficient to have inspired him with despair, however ardent his wishes had been. But even these were controlled by compassion for another woman. The idea of lovely Molly now intruded itself before him. He had sworn eternal constancy in her arms, and she had, as often, vowed never to outlive his deserting her. He now saw her in all the most shocking postures of death. Nay, he considered all the miseries of prostitution to which she would be liable, and of which he would be doubly the occasion first by seducing, and then by deserting her, for he well knew the hatred which all her neighbours, and even her own sisters, bore her, and how ready they would all be to tear her to pieces. Indeed, he had exposed her to more envy than shame, or rather, to the latter by means of the former, for many women abused her for being a whore while they envied her her lover, and her finery, and would have been themselves glad to have purchased these at the same rate. The ruin, therefore, of the poor girl must, he foresaw, unavoidably attend his deserting her, and this thought stung him to the soul. Poverty and distress seemed to him to give none 
a right of aggravating those misfortunes. The meanness of her condition did not represent her misery as of little consequence in his eyes, nor did it appear to justify or even to palliate his guilt in bringing that misery upon her. But why do I mention justification? His own heart would not suffer him to destroy a human creature who, he thought, loved him, and had to that love sacrificed her innocence. His own good heart pleaded her cause, not as a cold, venal advocate, but as one interested in the event, and which must itself deeply share in all the agonies its owner brought on another. When this powerful advocate had sufficiently raised the pity of Jones, by painting poor Molly in all the circumstances of wretchedness, it artfully called in the assistance of another passion, and represented the girl in all the amiable colours of youth, health, and beauty, as one greatly the object of desire, and much more so, at least to a good mind, from being at the same time the object of compassion. Amidst these thoughts, poor Jones passed a long sleepless night, and in the morning the result of the whole was to abide by Molly, and to think no more of Sophia. In this virtuous resolution he continued all the next day, till the evening, cherishing the idea of Molly, and driving Sophia from his thoughts, but in the fatal evening a very trifling accident set all his passions again on float, and worked so total a change in his mind that we think it decent to communicate it in a fresh chapter. End of section 15 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox June 2008